This is Danusha Lamaris, current Santa Cruz Poet Laureate, and you are listening to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz. And today, I'm going to be interviewing Pescadero poet Veronica Kornberg, who is a longtime resident of the Central Coast and is also the recipient of the 2018 Morton Marcus Poetry Prize, of which Full disclosure, I was the judge. Her recent work has appeared or is forthcoming in Beloit Poetry Journal, Whale Road Review, Spillway, Tar River Review, Salamander, and many other journals. She's currently at work on her first book of poems, and if, as you're listening, you'd like to know more about her and see more of her work, you can go to Veronica Kornberg, that's corn with a K, and Berg, B-E-R-G, dot com. So again, you can take a look at veronicacornberg.com to learn more about her. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. This is Danusha Lamaris, and you are listening to The Hive on 90.7 FM KSQD Santa Cruz. And I am here today with the poet Veronica Kornberg. Hello, Danusha, and hello to your listeners. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for doing this, for making it all the way down that windy coast to <laughs> hang out with us and talk about poems. It's a great ride from Pescadero to Santa Cruz. And it's not then... bad. <laughs> I'm not complaining. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And we met and you know, encountered each other through this Morton Marcus Prize that is offered um, here at UCSC every year in honor of the late poet Mort Marcus, a wonderful Santa Cruz poet. And you wrote the winning poem the year <laughs> that I was the judge. Um, do you want to talk a bit about what that experience was like for you? And we'll have you read the poem too. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, it is, I can't say enough good things about winning the prize. Uh, the event itself is just fabulous. It feels like all of Santa Cruz comes out in <laughs> this true. celebratory mood. Yeah. Um, and it's a, a really large hall uh, with a big stage and uh, just it's so it, uh, well attended. They, I think they turned away a lot of people at the door, which feels unheard of for a poetry event, frankly. <laughs> I know, only in Santa Cruz we have uh, these kind of problems, it's right? A, it's a wonderful, wonderful event. And then, of course, on the stage, um, Gary Young was the MC for the event, right. uh, and Gary Snyder was the featured yeah. poet of note, yeah. and so... Just to to get to be part of that incredible event was fabulous. Oh. And I'm so grateful that you liked my <laughs> poem enough to choose it. <laughs> I was so happy how that aligned. And I thought you did such a beautiful job of sharing your poem. And, yeah, it's quite something to be, you know, cast onto the stage like that with, with someone like Gary Snyder yeah. as the <laughs> guest poet. And, uh, and you did such a beautiful job. Um, I'm wondering if you'd share the poem with the listeners. Thank you. Yeah. I'd be happy to. Great. Uh, a little about this poem. It's a kind of coming-of-age story um, about a young girl walking home from school in a kind of derelict, rust-belt city and having an experience with the natural world that uh, points to different possibilities in the world. And it is titled, Stealing Mulberries. Walking, hungry, the concrete edge of girlhood, where 16-wheelers thundered diesel blast, road black as grackle, oil slicked, 
Dead wood bristling the stunted scrub. Chafe-hearted, I passed a clump of broadleaf trees holding fast to the cracked curb, the heaved slabs tilted and broken, sprouting soot-choked sow-thistle and cockleburr. The pocked concrete drab, dabbed with purple splotch, ink blot, clotted with a drizzle of fallen fruit flesh. And looking up, I saw the colossal leaf sea of a mulberry tree. Green, shimmering high, high as the tangle of telephone lines, strung with sun-bleached sneakers and wind-flung trash, high as its blue lair. The shaggy green skyvies lunged after each passing truck, its thousand small black tongues beckoning. And so I placed my foot in the crook and climbed, limb after limb, scraping knees and shins on the bark. Bark shinned, I shimmied, lusting after those sweet tongues, and escaped completely into the high branches. A green, leaf-draped world I wished never to leave. But of course I left with purple-stained hands, face, clothes, sated slack brain, bird treble in my ears. I crossed Route 31, not yet bereft of a short passing season, its unlocked sugar of sap and rain, not yet aware that a trodden path will lead you back again. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. There's so many things I love about this poem um, when I first encountered it, but also now. Um, a lot of it has to do with the particularity of the word choice, clotted with a drizzle of fallen fruit flesh. Clotted is such an unpretty word, <laughs> you know, and then fruit flesh makes us think of the girl and flesh and becoming. Uh, so much more than if it had just said fallen fruit. And that's such an interesting moment. I think that's sort of a turn where it starts to seem like a bit of that coming of age idea yes. uh, and a turn in the girl's life. I mean, there's it's a very has a lot of sensuality in it, this poem. Yeah. And so one way to look at it is that is as a an erotic uh, awakening. Yeah, right. It has <laughs> that. Any kind of sensuality can have that connotation, and so I think that was one reason that fruit flesh instead of fruit instead of fruit and the black tongues right of this fruit is such another clever way of doing that. Um, and lusting. We have lusting, <laughs> right, after those sweet tongues. So it's definitely there all the way through. And it's so cleverly done. And I, I always am interested in a poem, as I can see, you know, you have this aesthetic bent of something of the beautiful and something ugly, right? We've got those tennis shoes up on the line, <laughs> right? And that's not, you know, we all see that. We see people with the, you know, throw their sneakers over the telephone lines and somehow that's in here too is that a free conscious choice on your part of putting in something a little broken or uh i think there almost always is i mean i think in general there there is something broken in <laughs> almost everything that that evokes yeah. strong emotion yeah. and so then and then the poem can take a stance, you know, leaning into that further or finding a way away from it. Mm. Uh, it gives, you know, it gives you a place to dive in further or contrast with, I think. Oh, I like how you said that. Everything that's sort of emotionally resonant, resonant has some kind of a crack in it, right? There's something broken and you choose what you lean into. That's really interesting. I have a friend who's an engineer and we get together sometimes just for conversation. And he said, I'm only interested in things that are broken. 
And I said, me too. (laughs) Like, you don't realize what our vocations have in common. (laughs) Right, right. And there's that beautiful, I wish I could remember the name now, but uh, it's a kind of Japanese pottery. takes Yes, that takes broken pots and puts them back together with gold and... They're always more beautiful than they started out. That's right. And Hannah Block has a gorgeous poem about that. Oh, what is the name of that poem? You know, do you know what I mean? I do, but I'm not going to remember the name. <laughs> it was one of those things that I think it got a Pushcart Prize and in Best American Poetry. Right. Um, right. And I'm mistaking the name of it for a Jane Hirschfeld poem. So if I remember, I'll, you know, mention that, mention it later in the notes. But yeah, how something broken is maybe more beautiful. And this makes me, you know, think about the eye in this poem. And it's a child, you said, in sort of a Rust Belt uh, city. Was that your experience growing up? I grew up in Trenton, New Jersey. Oh, okay. um, Which was very Rust Belty. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, you know, you can see the broken sidewalks and, um, yeah, definitely. But but also there are these pockets of nature where I grew up. And, and they came to mean a lot to me. That tree that was somehow by the freeway, by the 18-wheelers driving past or whatever, right? Right, or down under the bridge, the creek, where the creek runs, you know? Yeah. I mean, if there's anything a kid loves, it's a creek. Right. Right, because then you're in there with frogs and tadpoles. Right. And right. whatever else is happening. Crawdads. Craw- oh, <laughs> the famous crawdads of childhood. Right. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, yeah. And also another thing about this poem is it's um, uh, in form. It's called an English quintain. And so it has this regular meter, uh, has a rhyme scheme for each stanza. Strung, lunged, um, I saw it at the end, brain, rain. Yeah, so each each stanza, sure, each stanza, it's a five-line stanza, and the pattern is A, B, A, B, B for each one. A, B, A, B, B. So for listeners, it's the end of the line rhyme scheme. Right. So The first line would rhyme with the third. Right. In that scheme. So... <laughs> so it's fun to do rhymes. It's a lot of fun. Oh, I see. And then the second line rhymes with both the fourth and the fifth line, right? Slabs down. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so tricky, so tricky. And so, so it has a lot of, you know, it it, it it has a lot of chiming and pleases the ear. That's right. I think, the... and and also I find working in form, even if something doesn't stay in form, it brings a lot uh, to a poem. A lot of times I'll write something in form and then break it up. (laughs) But you'll start out with the form as a way of getting in. In Well, in a way of getting my ear tuned. (laughs) Tunes the ear. I can see how that would work. And then you can abandon it later if you want, but you've gotten yourself oriented towards sound. Right. Early on. Yeah. It also sends you off in avenues that you might not otherwise uh, get to because you have to find something that rhymes, <laughs> you know, or something that's X in, you know, this many syllables or something. I love that. And, and so then you invent this thing that you would never have gotten there so with you your logical mind, have. you know. Right. It's funny how much of writing, I think, is comprised of mind games. Right? <laughs> right. It has a negative connotation, that term, but kind of mind games we play with ourselves, right? Like how Play is I... the word, right? Play. Yeah, so maybe it's play. How do I trick yeah. my mind into doing something it doesn't normally do? Yeah, and you have to trick right. your mind into playing in a way because right. you're you know, writing is hard, and so you're you're trying. <laughs> you're trying to do it, and you're thinking, yeah. "Gosh, I really need to organize my you know pencil drawer. I just I desperately right. need to clean my yeah. refrigerator." Right. There's a lot of ironing. Waiting. There's so much ironing to do in the world. <laughs> it's funny how I mean, it, isn't it like that with so many of the things that we know we enjoy, 
we just sort of want to avoid them. You know, like maybe <laughs> right. love going for a jog, but it's like, well, what else can I do? <laughs> right. Know? They present some barriers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. Well, yeah. thank you so much for sharing more with us about this and um, your process. And it made me wonder, when you were growing up, were you around other writers or were there people? You know, how did you encounter poetry and writers? Uh, okay. I was not around a lot of writers. Uh, I grew up in a giant gigantic family <laughs> in wow. a small house. It was always, you know, a boiling pot in the house I grew up in. Wow. Um, and a lot of my siblings are avid readers. Okay. We always went to the library. Um, and because it was so crowded, well, I would say one of the most remarkable introductions to the magic of words was one of my sisters, uh, Ruth, was very good at dramatic reading. And she was one of the older siblings, and so she would read aloud. We would beg her to read to us. Oh, and she would, we would sit around in a circle on the living room floor, and she would give these fabulous readings. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and would you get to pick what she read, or she would be the boss of that? How uh, that a little work? bit of both. <laughs> a little bit of both. Sometimes her pick, sometimes she'd take a, a suggestion from the crowd. Uh, yeah, she knew how to put her foot down. <laughs> And when you say a lot of siblings, this begs the question. <laughs> well, there were seven of us. Okay. Yeah, but then we always, it was kind of like a boarding house. We always, you know, if someone needed a place to stay, they could, you know, somebody would move out of their bedroom and that cousin or uncle or aunt or whomever move would move in. <laughs> so there were, there was, and it was kind of a hub of the neighborhood. Wow. So there, it was a very busy place, yeah. And pretty urban, like where your house was yeah, and all that. Yeah. So urban and a bunch of siblings. But it was that reading aloud, I, I would imagine, would really also attune your ear to Definitely. the word aloud. Yes. Which is different than on the page. That's true. Right? That's true. And the sound. I, I love the sound. I never thought of it until you just said it. But mm -hmm. uh, sometimes writing, I have to sort of avoid having too much fun with the sound, actually. <laughs> I'll sound like a pretty amazing I'll problem to have for I'll a writer. I'll sound it's like great. a really bad Gerard Manley Hopkins. <laughs> go too far. Speckled things, though. You can't beat him. Um, one of his well-known poems. Right. Well, you know, I, I always think that if someone has music, they're 50%, you know, they're halfway there. Because music is so much of it. So I really do think that's a wonderful problem to it's have. fun. Thank you. <laughs> And again, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Danusha Lamaris, current Santa Cruz Poet Laureate, and I'm here in conversation with the poet Veronica Kornberg, who was the winner of last year's Morton Marcus Prize. And for people listening, um, we should talk about that a little bit, about the Morton Marcus Prize. It's probably open for submissions again. Yes. This time of year, right? It definitely is. Uh, submissions close on September 1st. Um, and the judge is Patrice Vecchione. And I really encourage you all to get your poems together and submit them. Oh, yeah. Because it's just such a fabulous opportunity. And I, you get a thousand books too. And, and you we get totally a thousand forgot dollars. to mention that. <laughs> yes, that is important to remember. <laughs> That's right. You get a thousand books and you get to um, present the winning poem at that year's event. And, and for this coming year, the visiting poet is going to be Gary Soto, who's really one of the poets I first loved and an early uh, Chicano poet who writes a lot about growing up in the Central Valley of California. If you haven't already read his book, Black Hair, that's really one of my favorites. So just recommending that to people listening and who also would like to maybe know a little bit more about Gary Soto and his work or refresh themselves in it before he comes out to read. Because I believe that reading will be in October. Do you know if that's right? I think it's usually around mid-November. Mid-November. That makes sense. So it's a couple months that they have to judge the contest. Yeah, yeah. And so by mid-November, we'll have that event. And I think this year there'll be a thing where you reserve tickets online. Oh. So that <laughs> entry is assured. I know I talked to Gary Young about that, and that was his intention. 
for the coming year. I think, so yes. don't be scared away <laughs> by last year's uh, <laughs> dilemma if you couldn't get in the door. Yeah, I think that's a great idea because it is so popular. Um, right. And I can see why. It's a fabulous it's event. It's a fabulous event. And I should yeah. stipulate, it remains free to the public. It's really just to reserve a seat so that people who've uh, taken the time to set aside that evening and to drive up there know that they'll be able to go. Yeah, so definitely submit your poems. Uh, I also brought with me a couple of very short poems of Morton Marcus, uh, for whom the prize is named, in whose honor it exists. Uh, So I thought I would just put those in the space with us while we're talking about the prize. Thank you. Uh, These are from his book called The Santa Cruz Mountain Poems, uh, which has beautiful, it's a beautiful book. It has illustrations by the artist Gary Brown. Um, it's just a beautiful book, and I'll read, read them. The first is Dawn. Dawn. The stones lean toward the sun. They rise from their haunches. From everywhere in the meadow, they drag themselves out of their weights, lifting in unison like an exhaled breath. And the one next to it is The Year Turns Away From Me. The year turns away from me. I'm here on the other side of the hill where winds are flames, blue wings in the meadow. Tall steeples of ashes diminish at the meadow's edge and far down the hillside a deep chorus of boulders is singing the pebbles awake. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's magic. Magic there, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it re- it reminds that. me of Orpheus making the mountains move, you know. <laughs> but with his music. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for sharing those. Thank you. And I'm so happy to uh, have his voice included. Me too. I really appreciate yeah. you bringing those poems from Mort. There's just you know, such a rich tradition of writing in this region, and it feels so good to keep it alive and continue it, right? Right. And I wanted to ask you, actually, am I correct that you were the first recipient of the prize? Oh. I think you might have been. (laughs) That is such a good question, and we can't remember. Isn't that funny? I'm looking at Armando. He's looking at me. And I was an early recipient there may have been someone before me, but I don't know. I'll I'll look that up just for fun. There yeah. may have been a few people before me, but um, I, re- I also remember it being a packed night and a great reading. And no, it was Nomi Shihabnai. Um, oh, as the that's wonderful. Reader, she's wonderful. Yeah, and Gary is the judge <laughs> that year, and. Um, there's a lot of Gary's involved in this event. When you think Gary Soto, Gary Snyder, you know, I was teasing Gary Young about the, what exactly do you, you know, are the qualifications? Right, right. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't even change my name to Gary. No, proving that that's it totally incorrect. <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing Mort's poems. And I'd love to hear another one of yours. Yeah, so I brought with me a a couple of poems to read next, uh, which I think of as my feisty poems. I I write some more politically-leaning poems. Uh, These are not particularly partisan, but they do have their uh, political feisty element to them. (laughs) Great. (laughs) And you can hear a little bit of my my childhood history in this first one. Uh, I actually worked in a sweatshop uh, from the age of 11 to 14, full-time. I went to school, and then I uh, worked full-time, and then did my homework and went to bed. <laughs> wow. And um, full-time and a- many hours. Yes, many hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and anyway, I this this is about the first year that I started doing that. It's called In Which I Explain My 11th Year. How I loved the boss's mustache. That haystack of dry reeds and black snakes. The hot air balloon of his striped shirt, 
six inches from my nose. The word bootleg. The word eight-track. The wet tip of his cigar, that perfect circle of darkness, agitating between his thumb and finger. Smoke rime and dust on the storefront glass, the better to obscure what we were doing there. The way my sweatshop fingers fit just so into the slot of the splicing block. Silver shimmer of the razor blade. Strange names of singers someone else's parents listened to. Tina Turner, Otis Redding. The spelling enigma of red foxks. <laughs> Hot sizzle of plastic melting in the shrink wrap machine. My curlicue scrawl on the timesheet, and most of all, the dingy green islands of stacked singles, fives, and twenties. I am telling all this to a man who has asked me, which sport did you play as a child? I'm in off-the-shoulder gold, hair in an updo. He has accurately recounted his rise as a statesman and a scholar his familiarity with the secret levers of government and finance. A flurry of top-headed snowmen dance across his tuxedo tie and cummerbund, and their merry waltz spurs me to ask his philosophy regarding child labor. He rides the white linen-swagged steed of his dining chair. Fountains of peonies and winter-white roses royal the candlelight. Behind his head, a tapestry unicorn steps through a garden of knotted threads. You could play a Mozart sonata on all these gilt-rimmed wine glasses. Meanwhile, the pale scars barring my fingers glint like fish in the ocean between us. No, like torpedoes. Oh, Ooh, I really felt that ending. <laughs> it that is was a little, the feistiness. A little twist. That at the last, end. <laughs> that last line. Oh, it's just the contrast here between the inner reality of the speaker in this poem and the person she's talking to. It's just devastating. The difference of worlds is so striking, and in how you've laid it out. Um. And this bit about he rides the white linen swagged steed of his dining chair. <laughs> I just loved that turn where it becomes an animal that a, somebody, a well-landed sort of <laughs> gentleman would have. And But it's his chair. Just so clever. So clever. And as you turn the poem... There's something I see here that I, I feel is thematic in your poems, and it's this idea of there's something aquatic in it, <laughs> right? We get these sort of the, like the fingers that glint like fish in the ocean between us, and also the scars on the fingers are something that I notice in your other work, this uh, idea of a mark or a scar. Is uh -huh. that something you're conscious of? Uh, I'm, I'm more conscious of the, the aquatic world, uh, uh -huh. especially being in Pescadero, you know, I'm in the ocean environment there. So I, I'm very much aware of that. Yeah. Um, the scars, well, uh, we can do more poems later that might involve scars, either, yeah. uh, you know, internal or, or, or on the body. Yeah, there's... Um, because I think whatever we take, we carry with us. And sometimes you're, you're carrying things in a situation that doesn't see them. And a scar <laughs> is like that, isn't it? It's usually hidden, or you can hide it. Right, right. Or you can Put reveal some makeup it. over it. <laughs> right. Or you or can something. choose to show it. Right. But it's there anyway. Right. Right. Someone what heard this poem and they said, "Oh, it's it's like this uh, speaker is sort of passing, uh, right. you know, a kind, kind of, of passing, pa like socioeconomically passing right. in a different exactly. world from the world she came from." Right. 
And it just shows how how painful a juxtaposition like that can be because one isn't seen. Right, right. right. And usually, you know, you navigate the world with whatever you are bringing with you, and then suddenly it hits a place, you know, uh, uh, that brings it up short. And Like what sport did you play as a child, <laughs> right? Like how do you even answer, begin to answer how that? You begin? You know? uh, and while still without just lying or something, you know. Right. And it's also, it, it makes me think just, you know, socially, how we don't know what questions we might ask someone. Um are going to be loaded. Right. I'm sure it was a perfectly innocent question for him. He was just making small right. talk at this formal dinner, you know. <laughs> right. And for many people, that would be a loaded question. Right. Right. <laughs> and so it's interesting in that way, too. And this idea of um, how, what do we do with that kind of moment? Right. And so you can make a choice to sudden, you know, bring, bring your reality to the table in a kind and open way right. without intimidating people. <laughs> and you can bring it to a poem. Right. Right. Yeah. Certainly can, you certainly have done that here in a powerful way. Uh, thank you for listening. And for people who've just tuned in, this is Danusha Lamaris. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective. And I'm here with Veronica Kornberg. We will be right back. like to know more about the Hive Poetry Collective, you can check out our blog at www.hivepoetry.org. Again, that's www.hivepoetry.org if you'd like to know more about us or listen to shows after they've already aired. You can also take a look at the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD on Facebook. We have a special page there. Go ahead and like the page to get updates and follow us if you like. And soon, and on its way, will also be a K-Squid page where you can listen to shows after they have aired. So thank you again for listening to The Hive. We love having you um, follow us along and stay tuned. Come the new year, or I think of the new year starting in September. It's the school girl in me. We will be starting to host events, and we'll announce those here as well. So upcoming poetry events hosted in Santa Cruz by the Hive Poetry Collective. We'll keep you posted. This is Danusha Lamaris, and this is the Hive Poetry Collective here on KSQD 90.7 FM K-Squid. And I'm here with the poet Veronica Kornberg, who is about to read us another poem. Thank you. Uh, This poem is DMV, which if you, since, since we all need to get real IDs, we're all spending more time at the DMV, <laughs> and which gives you a lot of time to observe and think about things. Um, and it occurred to me while I was there that those are all Roman numerals, and it got my mind going. Oh, right. <laughs> That's great. So DMV. To a mixed-up Roman, it might mean 505, which is about the same number as my place in the queue among my fellow citizens whom I have come to admire as we wait to be questioned and fingerprinted, to cover our eyes, first one, then the other, to read from a diminishing list of letters on the wall chart, (laughs) 
to sit with a cane, sliding unnoticed into an aisle, to cup the elbow of an elderly parent as the line snakes on, and to sigh and shake our heads as the photo guy takes a coffee break, to state our political parties or assert that we have none, to agree to donate our organs or not, to look into each other's faces and see that what we have agreed to is not always to our liking before our number flashes on the screen. Oh, thank you. Gosh, we don't realize what heavy things go down at the DMV. <laughs> you know, are you going to give away your organs? <laughs> what side are you on? Right? Yes, All these yes. things. It's and really people there were so lovely. I was just so admiring of my fellow Americans. And, you know, it took so much patience, uh, including, including the people who were working there. Um, and yet it was kind of a marker for... Mm a particular moment in time that we're in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Where we're dealing with so much that isn't about people cooperating in these small ways. Right. Right. And there's right. something so refreshing, I think, about that. The fellow citizens in the line. Right. And somehow it's something we've all agreed to, even though we don't like it. <laughs> there's some kind of order in that, isn't, isn't there? But there's also an ominous sense of yeah. other things we agree to that we don't like. It's yeah. sort of both. Yeah. So we're we're our own mixed up Romans. <laughs> That's right. We have certainly plenty in common. And I, and this thing at the end is interesting too. Before our number flashes on the screen, of course, it's the end of the line, but the end of life too. What are the things we've agreed to and not? In right. the course of a lifetime, I love the microcosm, macrocosm. Right. So that this holds. Yeah. I mean, one. <clears throat> sorry, my voice just went. Um, one of the things that's so wonderful about poetry is you can take this ordinary thing and turn it, expand it to encompass extraordinary, magical, or enormous, weighty questions. That's true even though it's just a, a small, simple thing. It's kind of like start anywhere and go anywhere. Right. Isn't it? <laughs> it's magic. Yeah. I'd love to hear another one. Great. Uh, I want to move off the feisty political, because so many of my poems, the, the overall feeling that <clears throat> that is... Um, the impetus for them is gratitude. I feel like every day, how many times a day do I think there but for the grace of God or, oh my God, look at that. <laughs> I feel so honored, you know, to spend time on this earth or to be with these people that I love. So um, I have a number that speak to my gratitude. Uh, the first one I'll read is graphesthesia, which is a funny word. It's our um, human ability to understand letters if they're written on our skin. Oh, I wondered <laughs> if you'd invented that term or if it was it's, an actual term. It is a real thing, and That's it's great. used. It's used in medicine because you can a doctor can write on your palm, a neurologist, and identify if there's injury in a certain part of the brain. Oh my gosh. That, you know, enables us to have this great skill of reading reading with our skin. Oh my gosh, <laughs> reading with our skin. This is great. Okay, <laughs> let's hear this one. So graphesthesia. This is how I learned to love words traced on my back. Letter by letter fingertip language of my sisters. The body, a book. The body, an ear. An amphora filling. A slate wiped clean. First an L, the quick plunge, then plank at the waistband. An O, bumping over the shoulder blade. L, O, was it long 
Was it low? Was it loop? Make it love, I begged, for the sweep of their hands on the page of my back. It was lovely. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> that was just, a, that was such a pleasurable poem. Just so much sweetness in that. As is this thing that children do, which is right. spell words on one another's backs. <laughs> it's one of the things, like catching crawdads, <laughs> the other things we talked about, right? It's part of childhood. That's so lovely. Thank Gra- you. And did you look up the term when you were thinking of writing this poem, or did you already know it? I cannot remember how I came across that word. Hmm. I might have come across it... Uh, in another context and just made a note of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can do with that. (laughs) Yeah. Beautiful. I love that amphora filling the body, a book, the body and ear. That's really great too. Thank you. (laughs) Let's hear another one of these. Yeah. Another gratitude poem. Um, This uh, is actually a, a sonnet, though not a classical rhyming sonnet. And it is called An Appreciation. This time, I took the window seat. Awake, alone in the darkened cabin, I slid open the shade to look for what you had often marveled at, the aurora borealis glamorizing the polar route. But filling the entire frame instead, the dim, Connect the dots of the Big Dipper. Big deal. There had to be more. I stared a while at the curved handle, the squared-off bowl forever ladling darkness. So this, I thought, is mine. Soup on a cold night. Familiar tune written on the staff of an empty ocean. Sleeping question mark of ordinary light. Mm, thank you. What a, what a beautiful last line. That sleeping question mark of ordinary light. Gorgeous. And so, you know, the movement is from being sort of dissatisfied. Right. That instead of the Aurora Borealis, <laughs> you get the Big Dipper, which you can see almost any night. It's great because I wasn't registering the disappointment that much because it was so beautiful. I mean, you say big deal. There had to be right. more. But, but then right away, there's that curved handle of the Big, dip, of the big Dipper and this idea of it as a soup ladle and comfort of that. It's really fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Really beautiful. And it, I love when a poem does that thing where then, you know, I can't look at the Big Dipper without thinking of it uh-huh. a little bit like that. So that's really, <laughs> that's really fun. nice. That's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a it's, question mark. you know, these three images, very different of the, of the Big Dipper at the mm-hmm. end. So this is kind of an image-driven end here. So we've got that soup ladle. We've got the note Right, the familiar tune, rather, written on a staff of an empty ocean. So hold, okay, that's fun. So if you think of musical notation. Right. Yeah. Right, I was picturing the one note, but it's like we can picture several. Right. Two. Right. And then the sleeping question mark of ordinary light. That's really great, too. I like that it's a sleeping question mark. (laughs) It's different than just a question mark. Right. It's nighttime. It should be sleeping. (laughs) Right? There's something about that. That's fun to pull off those three in a row right there. It's like you keep trying a thing. No, it's this. No, it's this. Right, right. Yeah, that's (laughs) great. Thank you for these. Thank you. Uh, So another, in addition to gratitude, I would say another uh, way that my poems lean is toward honoring the survivor Mm. and uh, survivors, and also uh, encouraging hope (laughs) uh, in myself and others. (laughs) Uh, And it turns out when I am in this mode, almost always there's a particular person in Mm. mind 
uh, that the poem is ends up being addressed to, mm-hmm. even without my intending that to be. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. It, it sort of was a poem of address all along, but you didn't quite right. know it right. you in there. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, this first one is a poem to my grandmother, whom I never met. Uh, she had a very difficult life, and I am the sole recipient of uh, the one family heir- heirloom in this very large family. Wow. And it was given by someone to me while I was still in the womb. <laughs> wow. Uh, even though I was the sixth child and uh, this wow. uncle of my mother's said, I want, I want this to be for this child you're about to have. Oh, it gives me goosebumps. I <laughs> love that so story. This, uh, this chair, it's a tiny chair that my grandmother had as a child, made probably at around 1900. And it's the only surviving thing. Oh my goodness. Let's hear this. Heirloom. Child's chair. Sole survivor among things touched by my grandmother. The bent ash, soaked and rounded, gleams where a girl's muslin dress once rubbed. Scratches where button-hooked shoes scuffed. Patina darkened to blood mahogany, the sweat silted into every divot. The husband, lost to German cavalry, the daughter and two sons, handed over to strangers. The starting over. How did it feel to watch my mother, late child of a second marriage, run her dimpled hand over the same ashwood, or tilt back on two legs and stress the frame? To see the seat canes breached, rewoven, Such fights, such marmalades and moths, this chair has weathered. Yet it promenades still with a subtle bend in the foot, plating light by my workroom window. Wow, thank you. Gosh, I don't know how you do it, but in this relatively short poem, we move so far through history and through three generations of women right in one family that patina darkened to blood mahogany is so gorgeous and makes me think of lineage and blood (laughs) right 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 there is that in there what a sacred object it describes right it's an object that um calls me to try to be my best self. <laughs> does it? It does, because, I, you know, my grandmother, I've only seen pictures of her, and I know about her life, and yet in every picture, she's offering this beautiful, generous smile, and, you know, there's her child's chair. Wow, <laughs> that's so beautiful, and it, it makes me think of those the photographs of that era. People did not necessarily smile. It's true. Right? It's true. It, a photograph was sort of a serious thing right. to have taken. It was This was very pre-selfie. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> very much so. And the, and the exposures were slow, so she had to hold that smile she for a long time. <laughs> right. So that's yeah. interesting, too. It's a time when people treated photographs as portraits often. Right. And... So it's interesting, that memory of her and how this chair, oh gosh, the way that um, the wood gleams where a girl's muslin dress once rubbed, that also places me so much in that era, the muslin. Right. And button hooked shoes. Right. 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 And then to, you know, for her to watch a repetition uh, of a sort of several histories already, and then for it to come to me is... That's very special. And that it has a poem. Oh, yeah. It now has a poem. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Yeah. It it lives on beyond its physical form, too, this way. Yeah. And my grandmother has a poem. And she has the poem. Yeah. It's both of those. 
I want to orient people who are just tuning in that we are listen- you are listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here on K-Squid, 90.7 FM, and we're enjoying the poems and presence of Veronica Kornberg. Thank you for that. Thank you for listening to the Hive, and we're about to hear Veronica Kornberg share another one of her wonderful poems. Thank you. I think I'll do one more of the poems that lean into hope, um, similar to Heirloom, the last one I read. This one is addressed to my husband, uh, and it is Oysters. Waves and wind, sea lather jiggling among rocks or flung to clear the cliffs and catch on cypress limbs. The mind swims slowly in its shell, memories of last year, your chest sawn open, the light pulled to a pinprick. We are like oysters, the doctor said. Our bodies layer a husk around every point of irritation. You have worried the grains to a sunken treasure of pink pearls where the knife entered, veins fished from your leg, the ribcage wired shut. Remember now, summer, butterlupin, now, the sun, coral nub, plunging beneath fog. Thank you. Gosh, what a poem to write about a serious operation. It's such, um, there's so much beauty in it. And I love how it almost reads as though the doctor said, you have worried the grains to a sunken husk. Like, I know hearing it, <laughs> that's the voice of the speaker and not the doctor. But it kind of made me wish that doctors would talk like that. Uh, right. You have worried the grains to a sunken husk. <laughs> oh, wouldn't know? that be something? We it would, are, it would work for some patients. <laughs> <laughs> but here the doctor does say, we are like oysters. He did say that. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, which I thought was wonderful. Yeah, it's great in the poem, too. Our bodies layer a husk around every point of irritation. This is not your average doctor. (laughs) (laughs) He's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, and so, you know, it has all of this sea image, which uh, not so much the ones I've read today, but many of my poems, their imagery uh, comes from the sea and the life there. Um, and again, it's it's a survivor. It's a surviving poem of the body, right? And it, to me, it says scar. This thing, this is where I'm thinking a bit, oh yeah, this, this theme also of the scar, the way we layer around these points of irritation and they stay with us. It reminds me of the 11th year, poem explaining my 11th year, where the speaker is referencing the scars on her hands. Right. As I was reading it, I, I was like, oh, Danusha's right. <laughs> I'm <laughs> talking about scar. scars. <laughs> it's funny how as writers, we don't really know our own fixations. It's nice to sometimes. have someone point things out sometimes. I guess so, yeah, because <laughs> they're part of us. Right. And so we're, we're not as aware of them sometimes. Right, right. And I love in poetry how things turn into other things. The mind is swimming slowly in its shell. Oh, love that. <laughs> the mind is an oyster, right? They're swimming around in its shell. Kind right. of is, right? It's encased in something not so different from what a shell is made of, something calcium uh, right, dense right. and, right? right? That's interesting. I, it's one of the really fun things about poems you can turn anything into anything else that's right the mind is a mollusk is really it's really fun here and and also it's that thing of making getting the pearl getting that thing the oyster gets out of a place of pain or irritation where the poem becomes the pearl right right and then that pearl sort of appears again in the last line a coral nub Plunging beneath ah, fog. That's really lovely. I see that. The sun, coral nub, plunging beneath fog. That's a haiku-esque feeling there, a real silence at the end. 
It is silent, actually, mm-hmm. that fog. Yeah, we're well, we're all familiar with that coastal <laughs> fog out here. Right, right. Thank you. I'd love to hear another one. Do you have another poem you're ready to read for us? Yeah, I think I'll read a poem that um, sort of talks about, it, it uses the device of taking the most ordinary thing and seeing how far it can expand. <laughs> and also there's having some fun with sound here, too. Great. Rutabagas. Rude, root, bagel, beg. The violet rumps, the creamy tips. Warts, hairs, bumps, dimples. The faint whiff of dirty diapers as they cook. A swede, a neep, a tumshi, a moot. I don't know why I want rutabagas in my kitchen this wintry night. Staple food of the concentration camps, food of last resort. Original jack-o'-lantern carried through dark streets by children to ward off bad spirits. Maybe it's the satisfaction I want to pare leaf scars from the neck Peel the body's waxy, rough skin right down to the tender. Oh, I just love this poem. Is this a poem that you did some research for? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I did not know all this about rutabagas when I started. (laughs) And now you do. (laughs) Right. And now we all do. Right, and there are those scars again, the leaf scars. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, which was a, a new word for me, leaf researching scars. this poem. And what are the leaf scars on it? Uh, where the, I guess they're called sepals, fall away. Um, okay. You know, those early, okay. early leaves. Okay, I can picture this. Those early leaves fall off, and, uh, and of course they leave of a scar, which I, you know, have probably seen a million times, but never... Wow. Known much less, never noticed much less known the name for. This is so delightful. I think, again, sound here is one of the delights. You know, you had talked about how sound is often your doorway into the poems. And you almost have to turn off the music to focus on the writing, you were saying, right? right? (laughs) If I understood. But to start with rutabaga, rude, root, bagel, bag, the violet rumps, the creamy tips. It's just so much fun (laughs) to hear this. Thank you. It's so much fun. And then, you know, it made me think this is how you could get a child to eat vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But but then, of course, it dips into the, the seriousness of the staple food of the concentration camps, food of last resort. Um, it, it really goes deep into the the scar there too right in oh the for history. sure for sure yeah. it's, and also going around the dark streets of medieval times you know to ward off <laughs> to the ward evil. off evil spirits yeah has a long history that simple rutabaga <laughs> and i love how you end it with peel the body's waxy rough skin right down to the tender which i think is what so much um, it's what so many of your poems are doing, just peeling it down to that tenderness inside. Well, that's a that's a high compliment because that is such a such a worthy uh, endeavor of poetry. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you here with us on the Hive. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Veronica. I hope you come back. <laughs> Thank you.